Welcome to Healthcare Focus. We are happy that you're joining us back after a very long hiatus. If you are a regular listener of this show, you might have wondered what happened. Did we just fall off the face of the earth? The answer is no. COVID happened. And as many people, many of you, I think, um, encountered, COVID did bring a lot of instability, changes that we had to adapt to. And now things are back and rolling under control. So I'm very excited to finally sit down and take the time to edit all of this great material that we've collected for the past few months. This will sound very fresh to your ears this season, and it is in a very special context because although it is COVID right now, most of these episodes were either recorded fairly early on during the pandemic or before the pandemic and just didn't have a chance to get edited at the time. And so to look at the world through these eyes of pre-COVID world at a time like this is really eye-opening. And I really invite you to take on that extra layer and, and that extra curiosity and layer of thinking as you listen to things and realize just how relevant these core topics that we keep uh, covering in this show become in the light of a crisis such as the COVID health crisis that we're going through right now. Without further ado, let me introduce to you our interview with Dr. Stephen Albert. We just finished a season on death and dying. And um, of course, it happens to young people too, unfortunately, as we've um, been talking about. But there, inevitably, it will happen to older people, right? Is that's eventually where we're all headed. And so the natural progression of that season could be none other <laughs> than, well, what's coming right before? And, and that is the question of age. How do we age, you know, that period before we end up Um, having our last days how do we age gracefully and then what is the role of public policy in that space if the healthcare system um, supports an increasingly aging population what is the legacy that we carry from a healthcare policy perspective and how are these things changing what is the new research in the field informing us when it comes to how we care for an aging population how can we prevent certain things um, and correct others And also from a workforce perspective, this will be a yet another lens. What does that mean to work um, at the service of people who are aging? What are those special needs? What does it mean for the future um, as new recruits enter those ranks? Um, all of this, these great, great topics, which we'll be diving into. It's a very complex uh, question, as you'll soon see. Today, we welcome Dr. Stephen Albert to open the series. He is professor and chair um, for behavioral and community health sciences. Um, he is working at the public health um department, I guess it's called, right, at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. And he is very focused on this idea of outcomes in aging, in chronic diseases, but he's also looking at it not just from the physical perspective, which is probably the most traditional way where we're looking at things in medicine, but also from a cognitive standpoint, looking at prevention and all of the research that's happening in the field right now. So we're very excited to discover more Of course, it is only the beginning, but what a beginning it is.
You're listening to Healthcare Focus, and I'm your host, Karina Paraskeev. Healthcare Focus takes you behind the scenes of healthcare and helps you better understand the healthcare system and its potential for innovation, both human and technological. So, Dr. Albert, can you tell me a little bit about this concept of prevention now for elderly care? What does it look like and was it always like that? Okay, good question. The essence of public health is prevention at the population scale. Uh, and you have to do that sometimes through changes in policy, thinking a little differently about risks and costs of healthcare in a, in a larger framework. and. <clears throat> Prevention is the best cure. And uh, in aging, we really are thinking about what sorts of resources uh, people have as they enter old age. And that depends a lot on what happens in the first half of the lifespan. Uh, so people who do not have uh, appropriate cognitive stimulation over the lifespan or who experience adverse childhood events or perhaps start off with low birth weight Uh, all of them face a different risk of chronic diseases and have different uh, uh, risks even as they enter their 60s. And we know now most of the chronic diseases which disable people in old age begin in the 40s. So there's plenty of work to do even before we talk about old age. And that's why I don't really like the phrase gerontologic public health. I really think more of it as aging and public health. And while, you know, being able to reach very old age is a public health victory and certainly we've doubled life expectancy over the last hundred years in places like the United States. Uh, there, we're increasingly more concerned now not just with life expectancy but what we call health expectancy. That is what shape people are in as they enter old age and what kind of function and well-being they will have in, up into their 80s even. So could yeah. you tell me a little bit what you would look for to determine the health expectancy? Health expectancy? Well, we have lots of things. Uh, uh, do people need help with the basic activities of daily living, the ADL? Those are things like dressing yourself, bathing, grooming, using the toilet, indoor mobility, feeding yourself. Uh, if you need help with those, uh, you should, it would be very difficult to live in the community on your own household in our world is not really designed for people that have those sorts of needs and sometimes we call that nursing home clinical eligibility. So and even beyond that we have something called the instrumental activities of daily living. Do you need help using transportation or working a computer or working a microwave or, or writing a check or operating an ATM machine or using the telephone to make a long distance call? Uh, we would like people to be independent in those as well. But even beyond those two, which are complex entities, something as simple as being able to walk at at least 0.8 meters per second so you can get around reasonably uh, outside is a very important indicator. Uh, another one would be dementia-free life expectancy. Do people uh, at what ages Uh, and, what, and what, what percentage or what proportion of the population would not meet criteria for a dementia. Mm -hmm. So those are the sorts of things people have come up with other kinds of indicators of health, especially driving 
competence, life expectancy? Can at how at what age do people have to stop driving? For example, would be another indicator of health expectancy. And it's becoming very, very important now uh, as we're beginning now uh, a new phase of aging in public health, where the biology of aging is becoming more and more tractable for us. Uh, in the old days, we could only look at risk factors for chronic diseases and perhaps uh, uh, primary or secondary prevention to lower the risk of a chronic disease. Now we have, for the first time, uh, basic science looking at the rate of aging and perhaps that will offer some guidance on improving health expectancy. Uh, right now most of those studies are in vitro or involve animal models and their relevance to human aging is still to be determined but uh, this is, uh, I think we're on the cusp of something big, which uh, will really change the way we do aging in public health. Another very large change, if I can just switch it for a sec, is for the first time we have data science initiatives where we really can look at very large populations using the electronic health record and many other administrative data sets. And we're beginning, I think, to, to see now how to identify the vulnerable elderly and the vulnerable middle age in a way we couldn't before and to tailor interventions for these, pop these populations. So I think it's a very exciting time for aging, even apart from the usual gang of suspects that we think of when we want to improve the well-being of older people, such as technologies that allow people to age in their homes, smart homes, instrumented uh, pill boxes and things of this sort. We're, we're thinking, I think, much bigger than that. Uh, you can only go so far, I think, with those uh, assistive devices. They're not bad, but they're only, I think, going to be relevant to a small subset of the population for now and uh, in limited contexts. So, so if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is at some point, inevitably, people will start losing functions, right? And the, the name of the game is to push it as far as we can by having earlier interventions. That's, that's not a bad start. Let me complicate it a little bit if sure. I can. <laughs> One feature of aging is some is senescence. Some functions decline. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, our highest our perception of the highest audible pitch that we can hear that goes down. Okay, gait speed slows. Uh, <clears throat> grip strength we uh, re is reduced. Um, cardiopulmonary fitness might decline to some extent. That's true, but there's great variability, first of all. There are some older people, athletes for example, whose cardiopulmonary function looks a lot like middle-aged people. So some of it is plastic. Okay. But I want to even complicate it further. Uh, the right picture of aging is loss of some functions, stability in others, and possibly even improvement in yet others. Uh, until we reach the extreme uh, senescent period where we are approaching the end of life. So think about something like uh, chess, okay? The chess masters are in there, they're young. Those guys reach their peak in the mental acuity and flexibility you need in their 20s even. And sprinters are reach their maximum 50 meter speeds at 18 or 19 or 20 maybe. Uh, 
but if you look at some other functions, it's quite different. So something like uh, Scrabble or completing crossword puzzles that are not speeded tasks often. Those guys, are the champions are in their 60s for some of those. Okay, so there are different faculties and different competencies that map onto aging in very different ways. Uh, there's a reason why old people are consulted for advisory boards. There is some evidence that wisdom and judgment might change with age. Until you reach dementia, then all bets are off. Okay. And then there's great stability. We have been doing work here with various uh, behavioral economics games. One of them is called the dictator game. Another is called the ultimatum game. If I can digress for a second, the dictator game is we give people 10 single dollar bills and tell them they can keep as much as they like or give away as much as they like. And then we change who the partner is in this game. So sometimes it's someone they don't know and they don't see. Other times it's someone they see. Sometimes it's someone they see who's represents a charity. And we see that older people are more generous than younger people in the dictator game. So there are certain changes. Now, maybe generosity increases in old age. Maybe some of that is a function of not having financial demands. But we use this $10 thing to try to get around that. It's not a lot of money. Uh, we've also noticed in the dictator game that even people with mild cognitive impairment and mild Alzheimer's don't differ a whole lot from normal controls. So some social judgment functions are maintained even with uh, mild cognitive decline. So I think it's a very complicated picture uh, of aging. Uh, in the ultimatum game is a little different where uh, I have the same $10 and uh, I, give, I can give an endowment to someone, uh, but that person can accept or reject my endowment. If the person rejects my endowment, we both get nothing. So it adds a little more of a social cooperative uh, dimension. And again, older people are more likely to give and more generous with what they'll accept than younger people. And so why, why do you think that a study like that helps us, you know, tap into knowledge tap regarding into aging? Well, uh, I, well, there's a very practical issue. Uh, there's a reason why older people are more easily scammed than younger people. Uh, astute crooks and marketers recognize some of these features of aging and prey on older people mm. for that reason. But more generally, I think I wanted to just give you the other side that aging is a picture of change with great variability and not all in one direction. Mm -hmm. That's all I was trying to say. And, and on different yeah. dimensions, because in we dimensions, think right. a lot about yeah. the physical dimension, yeah. but you're saying there's also emotional maturity right. and maybe right. other... So, so think of it this way. Suppose slowing is a feature of aging, which it is. Gait speed declines, no doubt about it. Um, cognitive faculties, speeded tasks, we are slower in old age. If you give people a dual task where they have to do two things at one time, age really tolls. People really will be slower. Uh, but on the other hand, emotions may slow too, and older people tell us this. They say the highs are not so high anymore, and the low, but the lows are not so low anymore. And a lot of them say they're perfectly happy with that. that the, and there's a reason why older people report the highest uh, life satisfaction 
uh, as, uh, of any age group, despite lots of loss in capacities. So, and the, the art of aging is what one person one time once called a selective optimization with compensation. That is, you have to choose your battles, work with your strengths, and uh, also older people are very conscious to choose things that are likely to offer uh, a sure bet rather than take a risk sometimes. And so there are lots of these changes. There's a whole, there's a reason why we have a lifespan psychology industry and lots of books on how to age well, because there really are, there is some art to aging, I would say. So, so lots let, there. <laughs> let, let me segue on that. Yeah, but before yeah, that, I'm yeah. very curious because I hear you talk a lot about things you learn from studies. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, that notion of variability you, you brought up. I've been looking at mm-hmm. death and dying recently, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I realized as I was talking to different people that it's very personal. And even the same person, one week can feel one way about something mm-hmm. and the next be mm-hmm. almost a different person mm-hmm. in the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. How do you account for that variability? And also, are you looking, when you're looking at this data, are you looking at the... Um, I guess the statistical average or the the most significant portion are you looking at outliers like mm. who's mm. who's the focus of these mm. studies is it those abnormal mm. cases or is it that majority yeah. case okay good good question let me try to break it into a couple of pieces okay so variability first uh, you know take a take a plaque measured in the uh, uh, abdominal aortic artery Okay, if you plot plaque by age, okay, you're going to see less plaque in young people and more plaque in old people, no doubt about it. But if you now introduce a middle-aged population, there'll be some of those people in the middle age whose plaque looks like they're in their 70s or 80s, even though they're in their 50s. And by the same token, there'll be some people in their 70s or 80s whose plaque looks more like the 50-year-olds. That's what I mean by variability that there, while we're aging and while there's a trend toward accumulation of plaque, and plaque is bad in the arteries because of aneurysms and stroke and lots of other things, okay, uh, <clears throat> there is this variation. Where does it come from? Well, some of it is a part of a genetic program, you know, uh, and some of it is a lifestyle uh, influence. So that's variation. Likewise, you can have an 80-year-old who's still working, driving, managing a household, uh, very active social life, uh, and then you can have someone of the same age demented uh, in a wheelchair in a nursing home. That's what I mean by variability, okay. Now, across all uh, of uh, an age group, you're going to see this sort of difference and uh, the mean is only informative up to a point. I think what we're really interested in is there are subgroups of people and how do people get sorted into those subgroups? How can we reduce the negative ones and increase the positive ones? I think all of us would like to age well and healthy and high function until 80 or 90 and then die quickly. That would be the goal. And one of the things we want to do, for example, with uh, dementias is delay them five years if we can. That would cut the prevalence of dementia by half. And people would die of other things in high function until they reach old age. Hmm. 
So that's I, very interesting. This yeah. idea of designing for death, almost. Well, yeah, you might say that. I mean, now you you mentioned also the acute changes. So one of the things that really reflects this variability in aging is something we've all noticed. You could see an 80-year-old dancing at a wedding in December, but dead in March. And that's the kind of thing that happens with very old age, 80, 85, I mean, or, uh, it's very hard to predict, really, status one year or even a couple of months uh, from the next. So do we know how people who are aging and how their families make decisions if there's so much uncertainty? Well, you know, uh, Let's just say, by virtue of old age, it doesn't take a whole lot to push someone over the precipice into a spiral of progressive system failures to death. So a pneumonia could do that, or a fall and a hip fracture could do that, or uh, <clears throat> some other kind of injury. People never fully recover. or. Um, And I think families really can plan that well. I mean, aside from having advanced directives and a safe home and a support system, uh, it's not too easy to plan for these things, I, I would say, uh, although we encourage people to think about these things. Uh, uh, but I, I think in many cases, there uh, most deaths, I wouldn't say are protracted, but there's a period of decline obvious to everybody and there's time to try to put things in place I would say you know one thing we've done is try to plot functional well-being as people approach the end of life you know you, you work backwards you take a group of people who died and see what their functional status was three six nine twelve months before the death and you tag them to a person who didn't die at the same date and go back three six nine twelve months And already, 12 and 24 months before the death, the people who will go on to die are at lower levels of function for the most part. So there already are things going on. Um, <clears throat> uh, one of the most interesting things there that we did in one of our studies is show that uh, dying eliminates a lot of social disparities that people, 24 months before death, uh, Uh, people, black and white, older adults who go on to die differ. Whites are a higher function, reflecting many of the social determinants of health. But starting at about 18 months before death, those differences go away, and death is a great leveler, and the functional consequences of approaching the end of life are quite similar in these groups. So what happens at 18, at the, at the mark there? Uh, I think you know, mobility is mobility. And, uh, and, Shortness of breath is shortness of breath, and uh, the need for care with the ADL is not so different. Mm. But if you look at people who don't die, where you go out further, we see those disparities. So uh, it's something to, to think about. Yeah. So yeah, so the, the story of variability is a complicated one in old age. I, I think uh, that's, that's really the essence, but there's variability at every age. Uh, what we're, I, I think what we're seeing is trends over the whole lifespan. One of the questions we ask ourselves is if we all live long enough, for example, would we all be demented? Mm -hmm. And even that question is not so clear. Evidently there are people in, uh, our oldest death was at age 122 that we know of. 
and even that's been questioned, by the way. This was Marie Calme in France. She had validated birth records, uh, and uh, but it's controversy whether she really was as old as she said she was, or whether there was some uh, manipulation of all this. But you know, she was evidently not demented when she died. She was blind. She was in a wheelchair, but she was not demented. Uh, and I think if you surveyed uh, 50 or 100 biogerontologists or biologists of aging or dementia researchers, you'd probably get a split half and half. We really don't know the answer to that question. Uh, we also don't know really what the maximum human lifespan really is at this point. There's probably a subset of people with, with a lucky genetic endowment who, given the right life circumstances, might live to 150. We don't know. We have animal models that show that even wild type, no genetic manipulation, uh, for example, Mediterranean flies, give them optimal living circumstances, you can quadruple the lifespan. So, uh, let me tackle this mm. idea mm. of uh, favorable circumstances, because I think it touches mm. back on this mm. idea of social determinants okay. you mentioned before. What what makes aging easier? Is it mm. and is it just aging, or is mm. it the same things that health mm. in life in general mm. are, are affected by? Okay. Well, my colleague Ann Newman has a good take on this. She says, "You want to live long? It's easy. All you have to do is two things. Do two things: be a woman, and have parents who lived to very long, age, very late ages." All right. Okay. So. Of course, those are exactly the things you don't have any control over. <laughs> but women live longer than men, and people who, and there's a familial component to longevity, and also to dementia-free life expectancy, and even to uh, ADL, disability-free life expectancy. So uh, <clears throat> if you want to live long, you need the, the right genes for it. Okay. That's tough. <laughs> <laughs> and the sex differences and why they're relevant for aging, we still don't understand those very well either. Uh, but women outlive men unless there's something strange going on in every population. Okay. It, it doesn't hurt to have affluence and access to medical care. Even in late life, surgeries can prolong longevity for certain subsets of older people, okay. Um, not having occupational demands which damage phys physiology, not being exposed to environmental toxins, all of these, these things will matter for the likelihood of reaching late age at high function. And, and so let me ask this also mm -hmm. in regards to hospices, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that it, it's taken me a while to really Hospice understand, yeah, because, uh, or, or maybe nursing fields, I'm, I'm not sure the, the proper term for this, but when people do age, mm -hmm. and eventually there's a point where, you know, they can choose to remain at home, or they can go and be assisted, assisted in their living, mm -hmm. um, and I understand there's mm -hmm. a continuum of those depending mm -hmm. on the needs, um, I was looking over at how it was portrayed in some of the media and especially in the marketing mm. some of them look like they're almost pitching you like a cruise ship experience yes. or like a hotel yes. or yes. vacation True. resort and i was trying to understand is what is actually favorable for the person mm. um, who is aging is mm. it is the physical activity of doing mm. a house chore mm. of cooking of getting mm. groceries and mm. that 
kind of normal life where they have control is that valuable or is this idea of being served for all these basic needs so that you can take on the passion you wanted like mm. painting and mm. you never had mm. time to do watercolors mm. is that a better model and mm. how how is this shaped is this just because traditionally we didn't have those services so people did work at home or is this maybe the same way people have nannies maybe because they're more affluent or because mm. that's the kind of services they take that's a natural fit for them when they, they get older well it's it's interesting isn't it <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot there um, <clears throat> first make a distinction between the assisted living continuing care retirement type community you mentioned which is like a cruise ship or a nice hotel and the nursing home which is for people who are, are over age, uh, most of them are well over age 80, most, more than half demented, in need of uh, nursing, of, uh, certified nursing assistant care 24-7. That's a different kind of experience. The nursing home is really the exception for aging. Less than 4% of Americans are in nursing homes of over age 65 at any given time, though the life uh, uh, lifetime risk of spending some days in a nursing home is fairly high because uh, many of the very old spend the last months of their life prior to death in a nursing home. Let's put that on the side for a minute. Uh, the continuing care retirement community that you just spoke about is an integrated long-term care setting that combines housing, meals, social life, uh, with a dining linen kind of world clubs, and should you decline and need further assistance, usually has on the campus stepped up assistive living and nursing facility care. So why do people go to those things? Well, it is for the affluent for the most part. Uh, in my experience, it's people who recognize that they need to downsize and don't want the burden of a, a large home. But more than that, don't want to be a burden on their children and grandchildren and have the means to move into these settings. Uh, <clears throat> these settings are have much more permeable, permeable boundaries than they used to. They're not gated communities the way they once were. Sometimes they're connected to children's daycare and malls increasingly, and they're part of communities, okay, so they're not the age segregated the communities they once were. Uh, they do provide supports and some people worry that it's too much supports. If you don't have to cook and even not even have to walk to the main dining hall, that could promote uh, deconditioning and uh, lack of stimulation. Uh, on the other hand, there are many, many amenities in one place, and for the person who wants that kind of living, it's very satisfying, I think. There's a whole subculture of life in these communities of cocktails before dinner, and uh, you know, clubs of various sorts, and some of them are highly active politically, and join as groups of friends. It's an interesting little world that we don't know that much about, I would say, uh, right now. I think it's a little controversial. Um, uh, you might have heard about stories where people in wheelchairs were not allowed into certain dining halls because the image these places want to convey is active aging, not disabled aging. 
And uh, that, to me, is way too limited. I mean, what we're really talking about is, and I think what we all want to see is maximum function at any given capacity. And if you can't provide it in these sorts of settings, where could you provide it? And I think that's a short-sighted approach to things. So, so let's yeah, talk about yeah, that for yeah. a moment. What would be an alternative? Are there alternative models of when you're aging and maybe don't require specialized mm -hmm. nursing services? Mm -hmm. What what other options are there? Well, the big option is to bring services into people's homes. And our aging services network does that. It's a partly public-funded, partly private-funded, partly charity-funded system of bringing meals, homemaker services, social visiting, home modification, uh, all to someone's home so they can stay in their home. And uh, it's a wonderful system. And uh, going back to our techno fixes that we spoke about before, there really is no replacement for, I would say, human supports. And uh, for some older people, usually the well-educated uh, affluent ones, they might prefer technologies. But in many cases, in a very old home not instrumented for the internet, uh, human supports are also something very welcome and sometimes better, I would say. So yeah. may I push yeah. this idea yeah, yeah, sure. a little bit further sure. and try to understand if if it wasn't black or white, if it mm. wasn't mm. humans or technology, mm. if you could choose a blend, yeah. what would you assign to technology? Mm. What would you assign to humans? Okay. Well, look at it this way. The microwave is a wonderful thing, okay? Uh, <clears throat> it allows people who uh, have cognitive De deficits where it would not be safe for them to use a gas stove to cook. It's simpler. You can't get in that much trouble with it. Um, so welcome, welcome technology. Uh, it's made the difference between if you bring a home meal, uh, you bring a, a home-delivered meal into a home, someone can reheat it. Okay. But there was a technology that didn't take off very well related to the microwave. It was a scannable barcode on the prepared package so that you wouldn't even have to type the buttons into the microwave. You scan that thing, put it in and shut the door, and it would cook the right time. That didn't take off. And there was some concern among my gerontology friends who said, you know, that's more help than people need. Uh, so I, I want to just make that distinction. There's technologies that work with people's strengths and there's technologies that maybe undercut those. So what yeah. you're saying is yeah. good design for technology is one that respects the autonomy that we leave yeah, as I much? I would think so. I mean, it would be fine to have the barcode reader, but not, not have to use it. And if you needed it, fine. You know, well, that'd be okay. Now, uh, human supports versus technology, that, that's a little more complicated. I had a great colleague who ran the New York City a Medicaid program which delivered a lot of these aging services. And she was a, a great proponent of human supports. She said, yeah, someday there'll be robots that will help people uh, dress and bathe, maybe. But in the meantime, we have a great labor supply and this could be a great career ladder for that labor supply into the nursing and health professions. And she was thinking of immigrants in New York City, mostly from the Caribbean who were doing this sort of work. 
and uh, they form great bonds with older people and it's a learning experience on all sides. Uh, and they also have, they can exercise judgment that robots can't exercise. For example, they can notice declining health and serve as a sentinel and report back to physicians and family. Um, so just to play devil's yeah, advocate, yeah. couldn't you have a game that they do every day on a computer that triggers the... You might, and you might, yes. That, and that might work in some cases if the person were willing to play the game and the game was sensitive enough to detect these things. But uh, I'll give you another example like this. You know, uh, we have a home delivered meals program mm -hmm. where we've trained the deliverer to notice what we call changes in condition. This is a combined human techno fix. Okay, so uh, the requirement of the Meals on Wheels program is that the deliverer has to hand, hand off that meal. You can't just leave it. And uh, based on experience, we noticed that these meal deliverers are sometimes some of the only contact that that older person had in a day. And the meal deliverers would say, you know, I'm uncomfortable with Mrs. Jones or Mrs. Smith. She looked like she had a bruise, or she looked like she was short of breath, or she reported being dizzy, okay? Or I, she seemed like she was limping, or maybe the house looked a little more disheveled and had a bad odor. Okay, so we formalize that by uh, setting up a app on a smartphone where that meal deliverer has to indicate either no change in condition or half a dozen sentinel condition changes. An email alert is automatically sent to a nurse triage person who follows up with a phone call to that older person. Mm. And we try to intercept health changes uh, before they require an emergency department admission or something worse. And if you could intercept those sorts of health declines, you would be doing a lot of good. And meanwhile, you've made a lay person a, a uh, physician extender because they're observing health changes and we're hopefully closing the loop and getting that information to who needs it in a way to prevent something. That is very clever. Isn't that clever? Very clever. That's uh, out in the field now in, in our Home Delivered Meals Program is a coalition of sites doing this right now. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there, there are, so that's a nice blend of human systems and techno systems where uh, something like that is pretty good, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but back to the other thing, I think, uh, you know, uh, let's just say one of the main problems in old age is, some, is, for example, I think is social isolation. Would a tech device help you with that? No. There you need human supports. And uh, I, I, do, I, I do see, you know, that the home attendants or the homemakers, they spend time with a person. Now that time could be watching television together, which is not so hot, or the old person sleeping and the home attendant watching television. Uh, that's not optimal. And one thing I think we've never done very well is give these home attendants activities and turn them into activity therapy types, if we could, to some degree, 
to work with an older person in ways that would be a little more satisfying all around that we haven't done as much as we can. <clears throat> uh, the other problem with human supports is, at least in this setting, is they're there for two hours, let's say, to get the person out of bed, bathed, dressed, fed, then they leave, and maybe somebody else comes back in the evening time. And that's not optimal either. I don't know what the right solution is. Uh, I've also left out families, which are involved in this to some extent. And uh, that integration of family and formal supports is pretty complicated and can be dicey. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and to that point, um, <clears throat> if I'm looking at uh, being mortal with uh, Atunga one day, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think at the very start of his book, he mentioned something, and I, I don't remember the exact figures, but I, I think it was his grandfather, I believe, had three wives and 13 children, something to that effect. He was able to live a very long life. I can't remember how long, I think over 100 years old. And he was describing this whole system of support um, for his grandfather that allowed him to stay in his home, continue life as would be normal and he actually mentioned if we would have used those eight criteria that we use for for independence measurement in our society they would have never let him stay at home sure. and I, I was wondering in a society like ours when we're thinking of finally family dynamics and kids that maybe go to work and the fact mm -hmm. that you may just have one mm -hmm. kid and not 13 mm -hmm. or two kids mm -hmm. how, how does that fit is that model viable here or was it very specific to the cultural context mm -hmm. he was in yeah yeah well, look, for every one person in a nursing home, there are probably five equally impaired living in the community in their homes <laughs> with a combination of family supports and formal paid supports. That's the situation. And most people would prefer to be at home. And many families find it very satisfying to provide care for an older person at home. Uh, and so long as you have a family that can coordinate care, that's great. Are, are there trainings for these families? They are, they are beginning to be now. There are caregiver mastery classes you could take. Hmm. Yes. But if you don't have family in the United States, and I would say throughout the world, you're, in, you're in, at risk. You will be, you're more likely to end up in a nursing home. Hmm. And I, I've chronicled some stories like this of people who would rather be at home, but they fall, they're taken to the hospital, the hospital realizes they have don't they they have unsafe situations at home, and they're called they're then flagged as unsafe to go home, and that's it. Mm. They will never get out of the long-term care system. Do they have a say in this, or is it? They can have all the say in the world, but if they don't have the right supports and they can't show competency, uh, nobody would, would be willing to accept the liability of sending that person home. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a terrible thing for some people, actually, and I have written about this. Uh, so that that's certainly an issue, yeah. Let, uh, let me maybe mm. try a different pathway. If mm. you couldn't mm -hmm. necessarily fix your, your social network and social mm. support mm. at that point in time, mm. could you envision much earlier interventions that helped people develop social ties mm -hmm. and break mm -hmm. isolation earlier mm -hmm. on. Or mm -hmm. um, right, right. for Alzheimer's, I also saw, um, I think it was The Power of Habit, had this chapter on, <laughs> it was really interesting, this, the researchers went to this man's home who had dementia, 
and they were talking and at a certain point he asks him can you make me a drawing of your your house and, and show me where the kitchen is and so on and he wasn't able to to do that but then you know 10 minutes into the conversation says oh just wait a second i'm really hungry i'm gonna make myself a sandwich and he got up he went to the fridge and he got everything he needed and that's when he realized wow that person maybe doesn't you know have the cognition of what's the floor plan mm. but they know out of habit mm-hmm. and mm. and things like that make me think that if we were to develop programs much earlier on mm. that mm. teach people like reflexes and mm. routines that they can sustain mm. in older age mm. or that break social ties and have them have a support so by mm. the time they go grow yeah. older they yeah. have that yeah. would that be a way to tackle this yeah and there are people working on these sorts of things there's a movement to build what are called villages in communities so these would be older people linked in a network it's person to person it's also uh, internet based you can bank out volunteer hours and get them back you check in on each other they provide informal ride services uh, this, uh, it's a way to build social capital and connections but it's pretty hard to engineer these things people willing to pay a fee to join these things while they're still highly functioning. Does it interfere with family uh, connections? I think we're still in the experimental phase on how to do that. It's very hard to engineer social relations. I think there are people at CMU working on some of these things as well uh, that are kind of interesting. You know, uh, I remember talking to one guy, if you're in a wheelchair, wouldn't you like to know if there's somebody else in a wheelchair nearby and if there was a system where you could connect and use GPS to see where you are and connect or something like this. And lots of people are working on ways to boost social ties. But it's not that easy, I would say. We're not built that way, it seems. You need regularity, you need proximity, you need commonality of interest, things like that. Histories and yeah. How about adverse childhood effects? Because uh, mm. uh, events. Because you did mm. mention this was oh, a factor. Yeah, yeah. Could you fix it then so that a part of the population might age better later? Yeah, I would say any intervention in childhood and early life is likely to have a payoff throughout the lifespan, including into old age. Mm. Not, not only do we want to prevent abuse because abuse is bad, <laughs> but there was just a paper that came out last week that people who were abused as children are more likely to suffer elder abuse uh, now that we have these longer-term cohort studies. So there's a lot here. Yeah, there really is a lot. Yeah, great. So uh, thank you very much. Was there like a last thing that you think, uh, may, what well, should people read or check oh out? Oh my. Uh, I think it's a huge world in itself. Uh, I, I think I would be a little wary of the self-help books I would be very wary of the uh, cures to prevent dementing diseases and uh, the uh, jellyfish oils and nutraceuticals. Uh, I think uh, probably the best thing is to promote good old age is just to promote good health generally. That is more vegetables, less meat, more activity, less sedentary behavior. Uh, uh, lots of social contact <laughs> and uh, you know I, I think uh, getting yourself educated about uh, uh, services available as you get into older ages is probably a good idea 
but uh, there is no silver bullet right now for aging. Great. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Thank Dr. You. Albert. Thank you. We know that we tend to dip our toes into so many topics in healthcare focus and it is done intentionally. We're remaining at a fairly high level because this allows us to give everyone a chance to understand the system in a holistic way, to really um, see the actors in the ecosystem, how our different actions are impacting each other and to better innovate, really understanding the underlying ties here. The interesting thing though is that every now and then <laughs> there might be a topic that actually we've just opened a door and you discover it is perhaps turning into something a little more maybe a passion maybe something you want to dig in deeper and we always want to be that open door and that um, springboard to enable you to discover even more so as is often our custom we have asked our guest today dr albert to share with us a couple of resources that might be great to dig deeper into public health and aging. We are including them in the show notes. They are Public Health for an Aging Society by the Johns Hopkins Press and Public Health and Aging, published under the Springer Publishing Company. The links will be provided. We do invite you to dig even deeper if this, you know, if this has turned out to be only the start. Um, and we look forward to welcoming you on the very next episode.